All right, well, as we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll come back to our Behold Your God series, Lord willing, in two weeks. But it seemed appropriate today to redirect our focus by considering what does the Word of God say about the role of elders. And there's a number of passages that we could study We studied Titus chapter 1, which works through the qualifications and, to some degree, some of the uh, responsibilities of elders. Uh, We studied that a couple years ago when we studied Titus. Uh, And then there's 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3, Acts 20, and a number of other passages. And as I look through all of those, uh, there's a lot of overlap, and uh, the Lord just led me to this particular passage as helpful for us in our consideration uh, this morning. So the title of our message, as you see, is exhortation for elders from 1 Peter 5. And our text is verses 1 through 4, where Peter directly addresses elders in the life of the church. And so this morning, as we ordain two men, Christopher and Rob, I asked them to sit right up front so I could talk to them more directly rather than looking for them. According to chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we... Uh, in this letter called 1 Peter, that we call 1 Peter, uh, this letter is written to Christians spread throughout a wide swath uh, of, of area throughout the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And you're like, I've never heard of those places. Well, that's about uh, really encompassing most of what we call Turkey today. That makes this letter one of the most widely addressed letters in the New Testament. And within that wide area, there were probably hundreds of churches who were the intended recipients of this letter. And what Peter intended for those churches, the Holy Spirit intends for all churches of all time and in every place. And so it comes to us to give us direction for our lives and for our church. In A.D. 64, in fact, July of A.D. 64, the fires of persecution were lit in Rome when the the Emperor Nero made Christians the scapegoat for the destruction, uh, explaining the destruction of the city, which he himself had caused. While persecution had happened before them in various ways, uh, Nero inflamed the hearts of the government and society against followers of Christ everywhere. So Peter writes to these, these churches to give comfort, encouragement, and instruction as they faced hostility from the world. With dangers constantly surrounding and attacking the sheep, there was a desperate need for elders to shepherd the flock of God. And while not every church in history faces the kind of pressures and difficulties that these churches faced, the role of elders remains the same as what Peter describes here. So if you're there in 1 Peter 5, follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. The Holy Spirit says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In this passage, we find all of the terms used of elders and spiritual leaders in the scripture. Notice there in verse one that he exhorts the elders and even identifies himself as a fellow elder. The term there, presbyteros, can refer to those who are older, but in context like this refers to the appointed leaders of the church. Notice also in verse 2, the verb shepherd, an imperative. That translates poimeno, and Ephesians 4.11 uses the noun form of that verb 
to uh, translate uh, the t- or to be a title, which through the Latin comes to us as pastor. The verb is used several times in the New Testament to describe the, the function or the role of elders uh, in the church, what they do, what kind of job eldering is. And then notice again in verse 2 how he describes their efforts of shepherding as exercising oversight. This is the verb form of overseer, which is another title used, uh, translating episkopos, which is sometimes translated as bishop in various places. The emphasis of this term is the responsibility to watch over the church as a guardian. So here we have elder, pastor, and overseer. All three titles refer to the same office in the church. That's why here at Hope Bible Church, we don't have a group of men who are the pastors and then a group of men who are the elders. Uh, Nor do we have pastors who aren't elders or elders who aren't pastors. The pastors are the elders and the elders are the pastors. Some are compensated by the church because they devote themselves full time to the work. Others are not compensated because they have work outside of the life of the church. The gifts and the responsibilities may vary among the, the men who are elders, but the office and the overall responsibility before the Lord is the same for all pastors and elders. Those are just 100% synonyms of the leaders of the church. Now, Peter doesn't discuss it here, but it might be helpful to note in light of today, how do men become elders? How do they arrive in that position? Do they just declare themselves to be an elder? Does the church vote on elders? How how does that happen? Well, in the New Testament, what we see is that as the church was getting started, the apostles themselves appointed the elders in the churches. We see this in Acts when Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journeys and they planted churches. It says in Acts 14, verse 23, when they had appointed elders... For them, that is the churches, in every church, every uh, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So initially, the apostles appointed the elders of the churches that they planted. When they were there, but they didn't have time to do that, they needed to move on to later ministry, they engaged their apostolic delegates like Timothy and Titus to appoint elders. Paul wrote there in Titus chapter 1, verse 3, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So first the apostles appointed elders, then the apostolic delegates appointed elders. And then as time passed, elders of the churches appointed the subsequent elders. There's no record in the scripture or in the early church of Uh, Churches themselves, congregations that is, appointing or voting on elders. Certainly the qualifications for elders need to be affirmed and recognized and certainly not denied by the congregation. But the biblical and historical pattern is that elders appoint elders. Well, as Peter writes to these elders, he is careful to present himself as a fellow elder. He's not standing above them, speaking down to them as an apostle to elders, but rather he comes alongside them knowing that elders, while being entrusted with the care of God's flock, are sheep also. Elders need encouragement and direction. And so it is that Peter says here in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. Now, to our ears, the word exhort has a confrontational, maybe even abrasive tone to it. But the reality is uh, the word exhort means to speak the truth into someone's life, not from above them, not from in front of them as though confrontational, certainly not from behind them, but rather from alongside them. In fact, it's often translated as encourage or comfort. So what we're reading here is not a commander barking orders, but a fellow soldier stirring up the troops. And that's really how Peter presents himself, as you see there. 
Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter does say that he is an apostle, but here he says, note, as your fellow elder. Though it's likely that Peter himself was actually in Rome when he wrote this letter. We don't know if he held the office of elder at the church of Rome or at any other church. It may be that he's just using that phrase uh, as a fellow elder just generally to refer to himself as a, a fellow leader in the church of God, that he's a, a fellow shepherd of the souls of those in God's kingdom. But whatever the case, he addresses the elders as one of them, not as one over them. And then also notice in verse 1 how he says that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter was a witness to the arrest in the garden, to the trials Jesus went through, then to the torture and death of Christ. Now, in saying this, Peter doesn't mean he was there for every second of the sufferings of Christ. Matthew 26 and Luke 22 tell us that after Peter denied Christ three times, right, that he went out and wept bitterly. But that doesn't mean that he didn't come back around and follow Christ, perhaps from a distance, to observe what took place. I say that because some say the disciples didn't actually witness the sufferings of Christ. Because of how Scripture says that when Jesus was arrested, the disciples fled and departed and scattered. But that's clearly wrong because as Jesus hung on the cross, John tells us, the Gospel of John, that Jesus spoke to his own mother and to the disciple John. And for a crucified man to speak to someone, they have to be quite close to hear what he's saying. And so it stands to reason there that if John was present at the crucifixion, crucifixion of Christ, that at whatever distance the other disciples, including Peter, were, were there as well. And so I do believe that Peter was, in fact, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. But the real question here is, why does Peter even say this? Why, why does he tell these elders that he was a, a witness of the sufferings of Christ? Well, there's several possibilities, and we can't be dogmatic, but consider this possibility. Peter is not only saying that he's a fellow elder, he's saying that he's been eldering, if you will, for a very long time. Peter writes this letter about 30 years, over 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And along with the rest of the apostles, Peter has been serving the Lord throughout all of those years. The elders he's writing to, on the other hand, have been in the faith at most, perhaps half of that time, and many of them far less. And then they've been elders, probably even less than that. So Peter wants them to know, hey guys, I've been at this for a very long time. Now we know that someone can cite their experience. Uh, they can let you know how experienced they are, that is, and it can come across in a very prideful way. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> You need to listen to me. But it can also come across in a very comforting and encouraging way. When someone comes to your side, sits next to you in your suffering, and they say, brother, sister, I've been there. I've been through this kind of suffering before. And I just want to give you a word of encouragement, word of comfort. I think that's what Peter is getting at there. And then finally, Peter says at the end of verse 1 that he is a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Here he reminds them that the future they will share, of the future they will share together. And not only is he a fellow elder, meaning that they are fellow workers in the kingdom of God, but together they are sharers in the promise of the eternal inheritance that Peter himself talked about in chapter 1 of the letter. So they are brothers in this life and for eternity. Well, with, with those initial statements, Peter comes to his exhortation. As you look at the passage here, there's really only one command, one explicit imperative, and that is the first word of verse 2. Shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God is the only grammatical imperative, but the participle that follows that exercising oversight, that carries the force of an imperative. And really those two terms, shepherding and exercising oversight, are intended to be parallel 
statements. They're not two different things. And so everything else in verses 2 to 4 explains how pastors, how elders should do the work of shepherding. Now, shepherding is perhaps the most common way the Bible talks about the role of church leaders. All the functions of elders really parallel the work of shepherds as they care for their sheep. For example, like shepherds, elders feed the flock through faithful teaching of God's word. Like shepherds, elders guide the flock through the challenges that they face. Like shepherds, elders care for the sheep who are injured and hurting. Like shepherds, elders correct sheep when they are straying from the truth or right living. And like shepherds, elders protect the sheep from dangers without and from dangers within. Well, not only is the role of elders, of pastors like shepherds, but all of God's people, elders included, are remarkably like sheep. Listen to this description from John MacArthur on on what sheep are like. He says, if sheep stray into unfamiliar territory, they become completely disoriented and cannot find their way back home. Sheep need a shepherd to guide them, protect them, provide for them, and sometimes rescue them from harm. Left to themselves, sheep will indiscriminately eat both healthful and poisonous plants or overgraze and ruin their pasture. Because sheep also are naturally passive and virtually defenseless against predators, and when attacked, their only recourse is to flee in panic, the shepherd must continually be on guard to defend and rescue the sheep from attack. Now, if we had the time, we could consider each of those dynamics of what sheep are like and say there is, there is a parallel there with human behavior and weaknesses. But let me give you just three examples uh, so you see what I mean. In Isaiah 53 verse 6, it says this, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And then Matthew 9 verse 36 says, Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep, we have the propensity to eat spiritual junk food, if you will, or food that is poisonous to us without realizing it. And so the Lord instructs pastors, elders, shepherds to feed the flock so that we can all grow in being more discerning about the spiritual nourishment that we take in. But I want to emphasize that elders, the leaders of the church, are sheep as well. That's partly why in God's wisdom, the biblical pattern is for a church to be led by a plurality, a a multiple uh, number of elders, so that the church isn't vulnerable to the weaknesses and the propensities of just one leader. And that's also why the qualifications for elders are, are not such that elders are a different class of people, but rather they're sheep who have matured to a level of faithfulness in following the chief shepherd. Those qualifications are given to us again in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and uh, you can look at those on your own time. But it's vital for elders themselves and for all of us to remember that elders are sheep too. Otherwise, we might put ourselves or you might put us on a pedestal of unrealistic expectations. Well, now it's, it's fitting that Peter gives this exhortation to shepherd. After his resurrection, Peter, excuse me, Jesus restored Peter, remember, after his threefold denial of Christ. And in restoring him, Jesus gave Peter three commands. Tend my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. For over 30 years, Peter has been doing just that. And now he entrusts that charge to the elders of these churches. He exhorts them to shepherd and in their shepherding to exercise oversight. Now, with that as an introduction, we come to our outline. In this passage, Peter gives five encouragements as to how elders ought to shepherd and oversee the flock. Five encouragements as to how elders ought to shepherd and oversee the flock. They are to 
do so as entrusted stewards with a willing attitude, an eager motivation, an exemplary life, and with an eternal perspective. These five elements of shepherding are critical for a sustained ministry as an elder. That's all of you who aren't elders. I want you to know that even though these instructions are for elders and not necessarily for everybody, these are essential for you to hear so that you know what kind of men should be leading the church where you are a member. You need to know what to expect of your elders, what standard to hold them to and keep them accountable with. And then, of course, for those of us who are elders or becoming elders, these are the standards that we need to look to and trust and seek the Lord's help so that we would be faithful to the chief shepherd. Well, let's begin with the first encouragement of shepherding. Shepherd the flock of God as an entrusted steward. That's our first encouragement. Shepherd the flock of God as an entrusted steward. Look at verse 2. Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Note that phrase, the flock of God. This is a reminder to us of whose flock the church is. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it says that the Father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then here, as we saw in verse 4, Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. This is a vital truth, the forgetting of which has led to much destruction. When I was a child, and I had no choice of where to go to church, um, we went to a church in, in Washington State that was the largest church in that town. As far as I know, it was a faithful church. It was a church where the Word of God was taught, and there were faithful men leading the church. But troubles arose. And one day, I learned many years later, the senior pastor responded to someone who disagreed with him by saying, this is my church. And before long, that church exploded into non-existence. Jesus did not promise to build anyone's church, but his own. Some churches have statements that say they exist to promote the vision of their senior pastor. Many pastors are not so bold, but they lead and they function in a way that conveys that the church exists for them and the promotion of their own personal ministry. Well, not only do elders forget that the church belongs to Christ, but sometimes members forget as well. And so when members get more focused on promoting the interests of their pastor over the interests of Christ, that creates division in the church. We see this clearly in 1 Corinthians 1 when Paul writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you, may be, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, Cephas, and I of Christ. That happens today, doesn't it? What's the solution to such thinking and preferential uh, motivations and treatment? Well, Paul comes back to this in chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, and he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, he says. God's building. The solution to division over preferred leaders is to remember that the church belongs to God and no one else. And if the church belongs to God and Christ is the head of the church, that means that elders are stewards who've been entrusted with the care of God's flock. We're not hirelings who have no personal relationship with the flock. We're members of the fold 
who've been temporarily delegated the responsibility of caring for the sheep until the return of Christ, the chief shepherd. You know, elders have no inherent authority. We have no right to any position. We're not owed anything from God or from the church. God could remove us from our role just as quickly as he places us in our role. In fact, last year I heard the tragic story of a pastor, a faithful pastor, who had transitioned from one church to another, and two months into his new ministry, he died unexpectedly. Having gone through our own experience of suffering and loss of a pastor, many of us can taste the bitterness of sorrow that that church is probably even still experiencing. But as mysterious and perplexing as it may be, that difficult providence was the plan and purpose of the Lord of the church. He raises up elders and he removes elders. He gives the gifts of leaders to the church, it says in Ephesians 4, and he takes them away. Sometimes it's a joyful send-off where you, you send a man to further ministry, maybe to plant a church or to go off and be a missionary. Sometimes it's a difficult parting of loss or division. Whatever the case, the Lord sovereignly appoints and removes the stewards that he wants in particular churches at particular times. As time marches forward, there are seasons in the life of every church where there can be uh, significant stability and consistency of leadership. And there can be seasons where a lot of change is taking place. But whatever, we're see, we're, whatever season we're in as a church, the, the elders are to take care to recognize their stewardship and to take it seriously and be sensitive to the providential working of the Lord of the church as he exercises his control over the church. Brothers, as, as we make decisions, both big ones and little ones, our greatest priority should be to consider the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ above our own. And so as you begin your role as an elder, shepherd the flock of God as entrusted stewards. Secondly, Peter says here that we are to shepherd the flock of God with a willing attitude. Shepherd the flock of God with a willing attitude. Look again at verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. This speaks to the attitude elders must have as they engage in the work of exercising oversight of God's flock. According to 1 Timothy 1, excuse me, 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications for eldership is a strong, compelling desire, excuse me, desire to do the work. That's similar to what Paul means here. Uh, we should not be like a child who's forced to do their chores. Uh, we should not be like that employee who constantly needs to be reminded to do those things that he just doesn't like to do. Now, the word compulsion here refers to pressure exerted on a person to get them to respond in some way. And so if a man is not compelled inwardly by a godly desire to do the work, he shouldn't be an elder. In fact, it's better if a man's heart changes, his desires change to step down from leadership rather than be forced to do responsibilities they simply don't desire to fulfill. And so while not all elements of being an elder are equally enjoyable and delightful, Sometimes we have to have hard conversations and do hard things, practicing church discipline, bringing correction, conf confronting sin. We must be willing to do the hard work out of love for Christ and His people. Notice the words there in verse 2, according to the will of God. According to the will of God. Other translations put it differently, but it translates the phrase kata theon, which literally means according to God. Or, like God. It's certainly not wrong to say that we should shepherd the church voluntarily because that's the will of God for us to do so. But I think Peter's getting at something even more specific than that. Namely, that we are to have the same willing attitude and voluntary attitude that God has as He shepherds the flock of God. In fact, remember Isaiah 53.6, All we like sheep have gone astray, there is not a single one of us, elder and non-elder, 
who in and of ourselves are easy to shepherd because we just take such good care of ourselves. (laughs) No, if we, all of us, are going to remain faithful to the Lord, the shepherd of our souls needs to protect us and feed us and guard us and guide us. He needs to keep a close eye on each one of us. And he does that freely of his own volition. He doesn't do it because he's obligated to do it. He doesn't do it because anyone's compelling him to do it or because any force outside of him is forcing him. No, he does it because it is his good and gracious nature to shepherd and care for those whom he saves. So brother elders, when we find ourselves reluctant to go after straying sheep, when we feel that tightness in our stomach of, oh, it's another problem to deal with. When we think we've hit our limit of how much we can exert ourselves for others, we must remember that God hasn't hit his limit and he never will. So we can pray for his strength and joyfully and voluntarily, willingly press on for the good of people and for God's glory. So we must exercise oversight as an entrusted steward with a willing attitude. Third, the third encouragement for shepherding is shepherd the flock of God with an eager motivation. With an eager motivation. Look again at the end of verse 2. He says, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This speaks to the motivation of the elder. The idea that that we must not be motivated by uh, an eye toward personal gain, that we're not engaging in the work thinking, what will I get out of this? A woman once called into the show, the Jesus Christ Show. It's a talk show in L.A. every Sunday morning where the host pretends to be Jesus Christ as he answers the caller's questions. Yes, it's bizarre. She called in because she had questions about giving, because in her church, the tradition was, and this is not uncommon uh, among certain churches, that one Sunday a year, the giving collected for that Sunday was the pastor's bonus. But this year, the church chained the door shut so that no one could leave until they had reached a certain amount. She's like, Jesus, what's the deal? What does the scripture say? Well, if that's not sordid gain, I don't know what is. Thankfully, he gave a biblical answer, which wasn't always the case, but he did on that occasion. In 1 Timothy 6.4, Paul warned Timothy against false teachers, saying that they are men of deprived mind, depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. We certainly have those in the world today. But financial gain is not the only benefit that might motivate an elder in their work. Some might be motivated by the gain of popularity. Everybody knows you. Some might be motivated by the gain of now being well connected with other leaders around the church in other churches and regions, nationally, internationally. Some might be motivated by the gain of control, thinking now I can control the lives of others. I know of one so-called pastor who uh, controlled many things of his people's lives, including when they could go on vacation, where they could go on vacation, and he often demanded that they take him with them. That's no joke, because I sat in the courtroom as he was on trial for abusing young girls. He's now in jail, thankfully. So there are a variety of desires that can motivate a man to the work of an elder. If a man is motivated in the ministry by personal gain, he is by definition disqualified as an elder. Both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 list 
the qualifications for elders, and among those qualifications in both places is he must not be fond of sordid gain. So if that's the qualification, ostensibly there shouldn't be any elders who are fond of sordid gain, so why would Peter give this encouragement? Well, assuming that a man was well qualified when he became an elder, it's possible that in the course of exercising his oversight, his motivations changed. And this happens all the time. Sometimes a man enters the work with excitement and vigor, but then over the course of time, the the joy of serving and teaching and shepherding can give way to discontentment as the cost of ministry takes its toll. And one can get to the point in your own heart where you start to wonder, is it really worth the effort and the sacrifice if you're not getting anything out of it in this life, financially or otherwise? And so what happens is you begin to pull back and limit your ministry to those things that you actually want to do unless there's some compelling reason to do the things you don't. And it's at that point that one has slipped into being motivated by sordid gain. It may not be as sinister as locking the church doors, but the heart attitude is just as dangerous. Well, in contrast to this, the motivation Peter says we ought to have is is one of eagerness, he says. This word is only used here in the New Testament, and it seems to be a close parallel to the the word translated voluntarily earlier in the verse. Uh, Similar to a voluntary attitude, the eager motivation is one that jumps at the opportunity to shepherd the flock without demanding or expecting payment in return. So when you receive that phone call of a soul in distress, an eager heart responds like a first responder reacting to the sound of an alarm. When an opportunity to teach comes before you, you're not thinking how many people will be in the audience to decide if you want to do it. Whatever opportunities the Lord sets before you, you are to be eager and jump at the opportunity if it's wise given all the factors to be considered. But it should be a a desire that is motivated to, to serve the Lord freely and joyfully. And speaking first of a voluntary attitude, Peter says that elders should not be externally compelled or pressured to exercise oversight. And then here, speaking of an eager motivation, he he says that elders should not be internally compelled by a wrong or a sinful desire. But rather, our internal desire should be eagerness to serve without entitlement or greed. So brothers, in shepherding, you are to exercise oversight as an entrusted steward with a a willing attitude and an eager motivation. Consider then the fourth encouragement. Shepherd the flock of God with an exemplary life. With an exemplary life. Look at verse 3. He writes, Nor as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. We've seen so far the nature of shepherding, that it's a stewardship the attitude of shepherding that it's voluntary, and the motivation of shepherding that it's eagerness. Here we see the method of shepherding, an exemplary life. This again highlights the fact that elders are not hired hands who are something other than sheep, but rather we are sheep and our method of shepherding is to lead other sheep by the example of what it means to follow the chief shepherd. Yes, there's instruction. Yes, there's discipline. There's organization, leadership, direction. But in all that elders do, it is their very life that they are calling others to follow. We should be able to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Rather than saying, do as I do, or do as I say, not as I do, elders should live a life that that others can observe and learn from and follow. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that every life choice an elder makes should be imitated, though I will note that when I visited here for the first time five years ago, all four elders drove Hyundais, and providentially, I did too. (laughs) But Pastor Dave broke that pattern, and it's demolished now. Alan and I are in the minority. Nevertheless, it's the way elders live out a Christ-like character, the way they manifest the fruit of the Spirit, the way they demonstrate love for God and love for others, these are the things that 
are worthy of imitation. In contrast to this, you see there in verse 3, we ought not to lord it over those allotted to your charge. Lording it over refers to a leader who by some means forces people into submission. This is the leader people follow more out of fear than out of respect. One who lords it over their charge by their words, by their actions, draws a clear line of division between themselves and the people because they don't want people to be too familiar with them and think that they are on the same level. The one who lords it over demands unquestioned obedience and does not consider the welfare of those under their care. He does what he wants and it's his way or the highway. And using this language, Peter reflects the teaching of Jesus from Matthew 20, where Jesus said to the disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though our Lord was worthy to be served by all, though he was worthy of the highest respect and the highest dignity, Jesus humbled himself and lived a life of service. And a significant reason he did that was to provide an example for us to follow. That's what Peter says, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 21. Just flip the page over there. Peter refers to this with regard to Christ's sufferings. He says in 1 Peter 2, 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The sufferings and death of Christ serve the primary purpose of accomplishing redemption, whereby he paid for the sin of those who would believe. But his suffering and death also served a secondary purpose of modeling for us how we should respond to suffering. And while this is true of all believers and for all believers, it's especially true for elders who will find themselves on the receiving end of reviling and threats. Brothers, as elders, we must follow in the footsteps of our Lord in every aspect of life that he modeled for us. He loved the Father and lived for the Father's glory. And so should we, so that we can give an example to others of what it means to live a God-glorifying life. And Jesus loved people, both those who followed him and those who hated him. And he modeled sacrificial love for us. And so we should imitate him and his love so that others can learn what love looks like. The Gospels provide us with many examples of how Jesus spoke to people in all stages and situations of life. He spoke and interacted with the poor, the rich, the tired, the hungry, the sick, the proud, the humble, the self-righteous, and the self-condemned. So as we shepherd the flock of God, we should grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ so that we can imitate Him and be a live example to others of what it means to be like Christ. Well, of course, our Lord was sinless. And as a sinless human being, he set the perfect standard, which is our goal. And as sinners, elders, model how sinners can grow in the image of Christ. As they are informed by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, and supported by the people of God. If growth in Christ is the goal of all people, excuse me, all believers, and it's the purpose of ministry in the church, then elders should not be teaching and setting standards that they themselves are not willing to to follow. Our lives should align, however imperfectly, with our teaching. And so, brothers, know that you will be watched just as much, if not more, than you will be listened to. And so exercise oversight with an exemplary life. 
Finally, the fifth encouragement of shepherding is this. Shepherd the flock of God with an eternal perspective. Shepherd the flock of God with an eternal perspective. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Whether one is compensated as a vocational elder or whether one devotes their time outside of work to the ministry without compensation, the real compensation of shepherding is that the Lord will reward those who serve him faithfully with eternal glory. The day will come when the chief shepherd will appear and you and I will stand before him and give an account for how we have shepherded the flock of God. The Apostle James used this as a warning to say, let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So those who are qualified, those who are called and and gifted and appointed to the office of elder, the Lord will hold to a higher standard at the judgment. And the question on that day is not going to be whether or not they, they spend eternity with God or in hell. The question will be their eternal rewards. And as Jesus teaches in the parable of the talents, those who serve faithfully in this life will be entrusted with greater responsibility in the next life. And those who serve unfaithfully in this life will have responsibility taken away from them in the eternal kingdom. And so here Peter describes the reward as the unfading crown of glory. This simply refers uh, means that the, the faithful steward will receive the reward of eternal life. This is not to say that elders earn their salvation by their faithfulness. But as is true of all God's people, when we faithfully fulfill the responsibility that God entrusts to us, we can endure the hardship and the challenges of life and ministry knowing that eternal glory awaits. Though we should not be motivated by sordid gain, there are a lot of gains for the work of eldering. You will be loved by those you serve. You will be honored and respected by those who are blessed by your ministry. You will receive a high level of attention and care when you suffer. You will be recipients of various kinds of gifts. But no blessing, as wonderful as those things are, can compare to the eternal glory that the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, will give if you serve him faithfully. So no matter how much or how little you receive in this life as a reward for your ministry, know that you will receive eternal glory when he returns. Well, as we close, I want to exhort you, my brother elders, and Alan and Dave as well, that we shepherd the flock of God among us as entrusted stewards with a willing attitude, with an eager motivation, an exemplary life, and an eternal perspective. Beloved church, these are the marks of a faithful elder. These are the things you should be looking for in those that are called to lead you. And when you don't see them, or you, don't, or, or you see the opposite of these marks, you should bring that to that elder and let them know your concern. And if need be, even bring that to other elders. Because again, we are sheep and we need encouragement. We need admonition. We need accountability. And a faithful elder will humbly desire those kinds of admonishments and corrections. The churches to whom Peter wrote were suffering greatly. They faced far more persecution than we do today by the grace of God. But we can all see how our nation has gone down the road where active persecution can break out at any any moment. If you question that, just be outspoken in your workplace about what you believe about marriage and morality. When the church faces persecution and difficulty, it's essential that the leaders walk as their master walked that we lead a life 
following our Lord Jesus Christ. And his life was defined by humility and love. I won't say much about it, but just look at verse 5 as we close. Peter says, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, everyone, elders, non-elders, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Elders need humility if they're going to lead like Christ. And the rest of the church needs to be humble if you're going to benefit from the ministry of your elders. And what Peter says here is that humility is the, the door that opens the floodgates to the grace of God. And what more could we ever want than the overflow of God's grace in our lives, in our ministries, and in the church? And so may we be faithful as elders. May you be faithful in the ministry that God has given to each of you with humility so that God would be glorified and His grace would reign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for Your Word as it, it gives us wisdom and insight as to how we are to function in Your church. Lord, we confess that uh, with, with Paul who said, who is, who is adequate for these things? We, we certainly are not adequate. Uh, we are not sufficient. We desperately need Your help your empowerment, your grace, your direction, your wisdom. And Lord, we're grateful that you give those things. You, you provide us with all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his glorious light. Lord, as we begin this new season with two new elders, we're excited for your provision. This is a gift from you, Ephesians 4 says. And so, Lord, we thank you for your kindness to our church to provide qualified, gifted, godly men, imperfect as they are, yet an example of humility and Christlikeness. And Lord, would you be glorified as we continue to grow in the faith, in maturity and Christlikeness together so that Christ is proclaimed in your people are sanctified. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.